Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. And so when I tell you this story, you're going to find me occasionally sharing some insights that are not actually found in in John's gospel right here. But I want you to know that if you read in the other gospels are all found there, so the story will take on a fuller amplification for you. Now, what about this particular story? And then really, I refer to it as a story, but I don't want you to think it's some story that Jesus decided to write about. It's not really a parable because it really did happen. These were real people that were really hungry, that really needed to be fed, and Jesus really had a message in this for his disciples and for those people and for us today. Why is this such an important story? I think it's because this particular miracle demonstrates one of Christ's greatest creative powers on the earth as he was in his humanity, deity and humanity that he did. It was one of his, now why would it be one of his greatest creative powers? Because of all the things that he has done as a miracle, he did it with the most people at one time. So now he's doing this. So it wasn't just one person that he healed. It was a whole group of people all at one time. They're all confined to a setting on the side of a mountain, the base of a mountain where Jesus Christ fed them. And he had to perform a miracle right before their eyes. And he did it in front of the largest group. Another reason was because I believe it's setting the stage for what I said a moment ago, as he's going to teach on what's more important than just providing fish and loaves for people to eat, but that he would be the bread of life And last of all, and this is where I would hope that you would engage, because it's not just an academic study on theology, and we will be doing that, but I want you to know that this particular miracle provides tremendous lessons for practical application for today. So let's come up for air for just a moment, all right? Those of you who are teenagers today that are here, you're listening to this, and maybe you're engaged and you love doctrine. You'd like to really get into those deeper things here. I commend you on that because some of you are wired, some of you are on that journey and you're there, and I want you to learn all of this. But remember, you can have all the theology, but if you don't apply it to your life, then you're going to have a lot of puffed up knowledge and not a lot of love and grace shown to other people. So it's important to get the doctrine, but make sure you have the application. Others of you, you'll be grabbing this story here and you're going to see a sweet little Jesus who feels sorry for hungry people and he does this little miracle so something happens. Well, that is kind of what happens. But I also want you to know that it's more than just a miracle. There are life lessons that we can take home today that you're going to be facing that you can see that you have an altogether lovely Savior who is Lord and powerful in your life. And that's theology that you can go to the bank with. And so I want you to know that's the strength that you can have. So this is a tremendous story. So to do this, remember again that he's going to teach us the basic things of life, and that is that he is the living water, but he's also the bread of life. Now, as you study this material, I'd like you to somewhere put in your notes, or maybe if you're taking some notes in your bulletin, whatever you want to do this, I'd like for you to just write down the biggest challenge that you are facing right now in your life, the biggest problem that you might be having. Because I want to make this real for your world besides teaching this theology to you. So write it down. Is it a financial challenge that you have that's so big and you don't have enough money? Like often it's said, I have more month at the end of my money, you know, so that might be your challenge. Is it a fitness issue that you're struggling? I received a phone call from a dear sweet lady whose brother-in-law was just diagnosed with colorectal cancer and it's pretty serious. So I know that's on that person's mind. But how does this message address that? Maybe it's with family or friends, or maybe you've got an enemy that you might sense that's out there, someone who's challenging you, someone you you just don't want to go to work to have to face tomorrow. And so I want you to know that 
Those are the kind of problems, and let's see how he answers those. And I'm going to give you three lessons from the lows that might be a real blessing to you. So let's give you some background. Again, I thank you for giving me this time to do it because I have to set the stage for the next month of teaching in chapter 6, and it's so important. So to do that, let's go to chapter 6 again, verse 1. In the first four verses, it kind of sets the stage. Whenever you watch a television program, you generally see that people are talking, but there's a surround thing going on. They're in a car, or they're walking down the street, or maybe if you're watching a talk show, they've got a coffee table in front of them. Certain things are there for visual. There's certain things that are happening as background. Well, I think besides the story here of the feeding of the 5,000, there's some very important background information to let you know that this was really happening in history. So follow along, if you will, in verse 1. And the first three words says, after these things. Now, we could read that. We often do when we read through the Bible. After these things, Jesus went to the other side of the mountain, blah, 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 and we go on. But after these things are very, very critical. Sometimes you could read this and you might think, well, after these things really means after chapter 5, verse 47. But that's not how John is writing this. After these things in the context of Scripture means that there was a lot of time between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Now, this is important because this is going to tell you why there was such a crowd that was there and why they were following Christ. Because if you read in the first part of chapter 5, it's at one time of the season and we move ahead to another part of the season. So here's what you're going to learn. You're going to learn that between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of John that at least six months to a year has passed between the two. In chapter 5, we're talking about a feast that's going on in Jerusalem. If you believe it's the Feast of Tabernacles, this is going to be the Feast of Passover, and that's about on the Jewish calendar, about six months. If you believe the feast in chapter 5 is Passover, and you know the feast in chapter 6 is Passover, then that would be about a year. We also know that the season here is going to be closer to March or April where Passover is. That'll be important in a moment. So you know a period of time. Now you might say, what's so big deal about that amount of time? It's because from the time that he healed, Jesus healed this man who was a cripple, that he did a lot of things. In fact, if you went to Luke, you're going to find that between that time and this time, he healed people, he brought people back from the dead, he cleansed the lepers, he fed people, he loved on people, and he also told his disciples to pray that there would be more shepherds, more people would be thrust out to help those that are scattered to really make sure that their needs are met. So a lot of things are going on, and that's why people were following Christ. So after these things means a, a great deal of time. Now, geographically, it's important. When Jesus did the first one, two, three, four, five chapters of John, those activities happened in what we will call southern Israel, around Jerusalem. And if you remember, the more that he did, the more people that followed him, but more he incited the Jewish rulers. So much so, as we learned the last week, is that the Jewish leaders were out there to try to persecute him because of two primary things. One, he chose to heal on the Sabbath, which he could do because he was God, but they felt like he shouldn't be able to do that. That was wrong. But the other reason they objected to him is because they thought that the power that he was doing this in was not his power because he's not God, so he must be doing it in the power of Satan. So there was a satanic thing in here, and of course Jews are reacting to that as well. So now his ministry was really having a lot of conflict there. So he's moving from southern Israel, and he's moving to northern Israel. And so in southern Israel, you have basically Jerusalem. I'm making it real simple. In northern Israel, you have what is known as the Sea of Galilee up there. And so now he is beginning his Galilean ministry. He's done all this work here. He is now up there. So people are flocking from the south and going north to follow him primarily for him to do miracles so they can either witness those whiz-bang stuff and better yet, experience them for himself so he would do a miracle in, in their life too. So that's where these after these things are. So now continue on in verse 1. 
I won't be parsing all of this as much, but right now I need to set the stage and I, I hope that you'll follow along. It says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias and a large crowd followed him. Well, let's talk for a moment on this Sea of Galilee. When you look at a map and you're facing the Sea of Galilee, on the left-hand side or the west side is going to be a lot of population, a lot of people. That's where they were going. Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds. He wanted to go to a place where it was quiet. You'll see why in a few moments. So he went across the Sea of Galilee. We know he went across it in a boat to the east. The east is a small plain area, but then you go up to what is known as the Golan Heights. You probably have followed that if you've been following politics, especially those of you who are older and can go back to the Six-Day War when Syria and Israel were having a major battle up there in the Golan Heights. What you probably don't know is it wasn't just because Syrian has one belief system and Israel, Jewish, have another and all of that. The biggest reason, not the only reason, but the biggest reason is the Golan Heights are a large mountainous area that actually looks down on the Sea of Galilee and it was about like the old-fashioned Texas feud. It was all about the water. Who's going to get the water from the Sea of Galilee? And of course, when you're living in that Middle Eastern area, water is extremely precious as it is in some of those parts of our own country here. So part of it was, who's going to control that? And so it was a very fierce battle, and Israel won it. Jesus was toward the Golan Heights up to those particular mountains. Why is it called the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, other places, Genesareth, etc., had different names? This was called Tiberias because it was a Roman name. It was founded by Herod Atippus. Herod Atippus then dedicated it to the emperor. The emperor's name was Tiberius, so the Romans knew it as a, as a Sea of Tiberias, although the Jews would know it, the Israelites would know it as the Sea of Galilee. It's the very same place. No big deal for that. Just know that the sea was generally really a huge, large lake. So let's ask you, how many of you have ever had the privilege of going to Israel? Would you raise your hand? Anybody have? If you had the opportunity to go to the Sea of Galilee, you're going to see as you go to the Sea of Galilee, you can almost see all the way to the other side. You can certainly see the Golan Heights that are up in front of you if you're going from west to the east as you're seeing this. Well, as he went out on the boat, he wanted to go to the other side because it was quiet. The crowds, obviously, because we know there are so many, did not get in the boats. At least we don't know that they did. They probably ran around it. And the run around it was about eight miles, maybe a little longer, to run through that kind of terrain to get to the other side because they all want to be where Jesus is to maybe capture another miracle from him. He goes to the other side, obviously, takes the boat across. Whether they rode it or the wind took him, I don't know. But obviously he could get there faster because it was about four miles to get to the other side. Why is that important? It's all part of the story as he's setting himself up for this entire truth of, of gospel uh, of John chapter 6. So let's go now to verse 2. It says, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now he did it everywhere he went. Some people believe that he did it on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Did a lot of miracles there. And after a while he said, you know, I'm going to go to the other side. And he took his guys with him. So the large crowd is what you really want to fixate on for a moment. If this is your Bible, you need to know what does it mean by a large crowd. All right, verse 2 says, a large crowd, follow along with me, go to verse 5, it says, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him. Now, capture the word crowd for a moment, because in other parts here, you're going to see the word people there, but it really means crowd. So a large crowd was coming to him. Now, if you will, end of verse 5, it says, so that these, the large crowd, may eat. Now, go to end of verse 7, it says, for everyone, the large crowd, to receive a little. Verse 9, end of that. For so many crowds, so many people, verse 10, have the people, the crowds, sit down. So the men sit down in numbers of about 5,000. And here it says that amount. Now, what I don't have time is to take you to the other parts of the story found in the other Gospels. 
The other one said that there were 5,000 men that sat, but there were also women and children. Now, to capture about how many that would be, most of the commentators will say you got 5,000 men, 5,000 women, bah, 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 average two kids, so they thought the crowds were about 20,000. I would like to tell you that we don't know how large that crowd was. If that's the math you want to use, you can certainly go do that. I don't know that every man was married, and I don't know that every woman was married, so we really don't know, and I don't know if they had 2.5 kids. I just know that the crowd had to be larger than 5,000. So for today, if you don't mind, let's just realistically assume that the crowd was between 15 and 20,000. If you think that's pretty realistic based on those kind of math, would you say, uh-huh? All right, so we're going to look at fifteen to 20,000. Now, for some of you, that's a crowd that you're not used to. Now, I did not do a crowd study of the um, Aloha Stadium. I probably should have done that. But I don't believe the crowd was as large as the Aloha Stadium crowd. So what would be the next two venues here in Honolulu that would tell us a little bit about what the crowd would look like? So I went over and I checked out the statistics for the Blaisdell Conference Center. You know where the big convention center is? And I found out that the convention center could seat in the convention center 8,800 people. If you've been to the hymn conference, you can see how many people are there jammed in there, 8,000. Well, that's still too small, so I thought, okay, we'll be the crowd that Jesus Christ is going to feed now. So I decided, well, how about the Stan Sheriff uh, Arena? That's where the University of Hawaii plays basketball and plays volleyball in there. How big is that arena? And the best uh, computation I could come to is that it would seat 10,300 people. So either I double the size of Blaisdell or maybe double the size of Stan Sheriff. That's how many people. So the next time you either go to a ball game or the convention and you're sitting there, I want you to think of how many people were there. So when it says a large crowd, we're not talking about the size of our church. We're talking about a huge crowd of men, women, and children. Can you imagine the commotion that was out there of those people coming? Recently, I've done weddings and funerals, and sometimes a little cakey that are real young. Man, they just everywhere. You know, sometimes I'm speaking at a funeral, and they're almost climbing in the casket, and I'm having a heart attack, you know. They're everywhere on this thing. And that's not to put down kids. Kids are kids. They don't know what's going on. But that's the kind of crowd that was there. And why they were there was, again, for Jesus Christ to do, watch this, to do a miracle. It wasn't the message. It was the work not the words. It was the sign, not his statements, or what he wanted to share with them is true. And that's why they were coming. So go back to the passage again, chapter 6, verse 2. So a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing, especially on those who were sick. And by the way, who wouldn't? If you knew someone was in town and you had cancer and you had a problem, your kids were sick, wouldn't you want to run to that person and have them heal you? Of course you would. So naturally, that's a natural response. But Again, it's a selfish response, and Jesus wants to take us to another level. And let me say that again. Jesus wants to take us to another level than just he becomes the candy man. All right, let's go to verse 3. It says, Then Jesus went up on the mount, we already explained what that was, and there he sat down with his disciples. What is kind of important is to know why would he want to leave this crowd? You know, a big crowd, everybody wants him. He can do more miracles. Why did he want to leave the crowd? I'm going to give you my opinion of what I think it is, and I think it's pretty accurate. I believe that he was doing so much with his disciples that there was a degree of fatigue around there. He's been doing a lot of preaching, a lot of speaking. If you read, again, here it is, Mark chapter 3, verse 6. You can find out all about what he was doing. Luke chapter 6, verse Verse, uh, chapter 6 through chapter 9. You can read his story. He was preaching, teaching. In fact, he would go all day and into the night doing these things, so there was a time for him to come apart. And I love that about Jesus. 
Yes, he was God. He was more powerful than any man will ever be. So yes, he could conquer fatigue and all of that, but he was still all man as well as all God. I don't know how that fits together. Hypostatic union, they call it, but he was that, so he was tired. He was smart enough because he's God and he loves us enough to show us a model that as busy as we are, whatever it might be, spiritual or work or family activities, that if we don't come apart, we will come apart. And so no matter how many times the crowds are coming at you, there is a time to come apart. Now, notice what he did. He didn't go fishing. He didn't go necessarily camping. He didn't go to the movies. He didn't go redirect into some other major activities. He went to a quiet place primarily to be alone. Yes, he went with the crowds, but there's another verse that he also secluded himself all alone. So I think he went with the 12, and then he kind of went off by himself as well to have that as our model. There's something else for you spiritual leaders, those of you that are in spiritual leadership. You'll notice that he invited the disciples. They came with him. He didn't stop them from coming. That there, too, is a time that you need to have what is called a sabbatical. There is a time because in some spiritual leader's life, there is no eight to five. You don't work five days a week. You're carrying the burdens and the heartaches and the needs of the people and keeping it all together 24-7, seven days a week. And if that's too much for you and you don't like it, then if you can't stand the heat, then spiritual leader, get out of the kitchen and do something else. But if God's called you to that, then enjoy that. You take that on cheerfully as a servant who does it for the Lord. But still, there's a time that you need to get alone. And I'm so grateful that the Lord showed us that. So there was that fatigue, but there's something else that you don't know that happened. Some of you might, I don't know. But do you know what Jesus just heard recently? He just heard that his cousin was killed. His cousin was killed by having his head taken off. That's a horrible, gruesome death. We hear about that happening now in Iraq and other places. It's horrible, horrible death. And there was his cousin, John the Baptist. But I also know that Jesus loved his disciples and most of his disciples actually were followers of John the Baptist before they followed Jesus because John the Baptist told his followers, hey, look at Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you go to him. And so now they're suffering that loss. Have you had a loss recently of someone that you loved? I don't mean someone who just kind of died because they were old and maybe had an old-fashioned heart attack and keeled over. I'm talking about someone who was in basically the vitality of life and they were brutalized, murdered. Someone you loved, someone who was your mentor, someone who has influenced your life, a family member. Well, that's what they're going through. And so he says, you know what? You need to come apart and have some time. I think that's very important, how touching that might have been. There's another reason we'll we'll learn later on is that they were getting ready for the Passover. Now watch, they're upper in Galilee. The Passover was down in Jerusalem. So while they did all this activity, emotionally they're drained, physically they're tired, and yet they want to go to the Passover because it's an exhilarating time. It's an important time for them to go, and they've got to get primed and prepped for that. So they needed some time alone. Maybe some of you are facing some big things in your life. Maybe it's time for you to get alone and be with the Lord. A major decision, a move, And maybe some of you, even before you go on vacation, take some time alone to center down on God so that you're spiritually prepared for what he has for you on your journey of life. And so he did that, and I I bless that, that it would be recorded here in Scripture. So let's go to verse 3. It says, Then Jesus went up to the mountains, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. 
And I said all of that as the background information to now know what's going to happen as we begin this particular study. So let's talk about three lessons that we can learn from this, what, what these loaves teach us. I'm going to call them, for practical reasons, the first one we're going to call it the lesson of the yardstick. The lesson of the yardstick. If you will follow along in verse 5, it says this, Therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? I thought this was interesting because remember where Jesus was? He went up to the mountain. He's seated up there having a quiet time with his disciples. He already knew because he's God. He knows that those, those folks are running at him, coming at him, a large crowd. We might even use the term a mob is coming at him. We're not talking 100 people. We're not talking 1,000 people. We're not talking 2,000 people. We're talking 15,000 people all strung out, like looking at an old-fashioned Texas cattle drive, strewn all the way to the horizon, people coming to him. I'm going to tell you, have you ever had a time when you really wanted to be alone with the Lord and you planned to go and you made the trip to go, you set up your calendar to go and there was an interruption in your life? I would call this some kind of an unwelcome interruption. Now, maybe he wouldn't call it that because he knew what was going to happen and he had a plan already, etc. But for you and me, we don't all, we forget that there's a planned interruption by God. It's unwelcome to us. Something you didn't plan. Something came into your life. I read a story about a man who came home from work and he looked out as he walked in his, his house and he looked through the, the, the living room and he saw in his pool a bug was in there. So he went and looked at this bug that was in his pool. Now, for you and me, that probably wouldn't be a big deal if you had a bug in the pool. But the rest of the story is really what it was. A man was driving a Volkswagen and he lost control and plowed through the fence and the bug was the Volkswagen bug that was in his back pool. Now, if that happened to you when your calendar is already filled and your money is low and you've got to do some things and people are counting on you and now you've got this big problem of a car in your swimming pool, that would be an unwelcome interruption, wouldn't it? Well, we have all of those, but maybe even in that unwelcome interruption that the Lord permits, there is a spiritual lesson in there. And so this is the time for us to really center our hearts down on the Lord and what can we learn. So this is the lesson of the, of the yardstick. And so if you want to know what it is in a sentence, it would be this, not to measure your problem or your challenge according to your own ability. Not to measure your problem or your challenge according to your own ability. I think there are two words that probably shouldn't be in a dictionary. One would be the word omnipotence and the other word would be impossibility because I don't think those two words go with the Lord. If he's all powerful, then there is no impossibility with the Lord. And I really love that about him and it's so important for us to see that. And God loves impossible situations. So let's go back to the text. It says to Philip here, where are we going to buy the bread so that we may eat? Now, for some of you, you might want to know this. Why in the world would he ask Philip to do this? Why, why would he ask Philip? I thought that myself. He had all these other guys with him. Why didn't he ask one of them? Why did he ask Philip? I believe one reason he asked him is because nearby where Jesus was, that was a very place where Andrew and Peter, and John, and of course, Philip lived. So that if they if there was a place to go get food, Philip then could easily say, oh, I know, there's a baker over here that can provide the food. Maybe that's right. Another reason some people say, I don't know if I'd go that far, says that they think Philip was in charge of all of the feeding of these 12 guys, and so he was kind of like the administrator. He was kind of like the cook. Some of you guys are like that. You know, I don't like doing too much, but just give me a grill, and I'll be in charge of the food for the guys. You know, you're always at the grill. Maybe that would have been Philip. I don't know. Here's what I do believe was the reason he asked Philip, would you go? Who's going to get food? Look, if you will, follow along in verse 6. This Jesus is saying to test him. For he himself, Jesus, knew what he was intending to do. 
See, Jesus is, is all wise, he's all knowledgeable. So he knew this whole thing. He knew about those. He knew they were going to come running anyway. He knew what he was going to do with these guys. He had to teach him about a divine interruption. So all of this was in his mind, but he had to test Philip. In your margin, you might want to write this phrase down. It's a test of trust. And I want you to put a circle around that because throughout this message and throughout your life, I want you to know that you're going to be tested to see how much trust you have in a sovereign God who's in control of everything that's happening in your life. He either prescribes it or he permits it. So it's what we call a test of trust. Now, why does God put these impossible situations into our life? That's a good question. I'd like to give you three reasons why I think these are my reasons, but I think they're biblical, so it might help you. Why does God put us into an impossible situation? I believe it's to stretch our undeveloped faith. I believe that he tests us out there because if everything was going great and we were never really tested, we would never grow our faith. Our faith grows when God does something in our life to test us and we stretch toward that test to pass it. Our faith is now stretching and therefore our faith is now growing. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.